Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In this episode, I provide an overview of sections 3 through 25 of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy and discuss what 1960s popular culture made of the notion of the Dionysian as a panacea for what they saw as the crisis of modernity. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. Sections 3 through 9 of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy continue to elaborate his conceptions of the Apollinean and the Dionysian as we discussed in episode 7 of this podcast. We make a mistake, Nietzsche attests, if we look to the Greek gods for the moral guidance that we might seek in the Abrahamic Yahweh or the Christian God. In the gods of Mount Olympus, the Greek gods, quote, we hear nothing but the accents of an exuberant, triumphant life in which all things, whether good or evil, are deified, end quote. We deal here with an excess of life, not an abstraction away from it, not with something incommensurable with life. The Greeks, Nietzsche assures us, felt the horror and terror of existence, and so Apollo and the middle world of art, as Nietzsche terms it, serves as a dream shield, protecting us from insight into the horrible truth of the world, what Schopenhauer terms the will. This is important. Nietzsche shares Schopenhauer's pessimism, but he demands a cure for it. He doesn't want to resign himself to Schopenhauerian abnegation. He wants to embrace life. Art offers a way of doing that, in part because it is a lie that we recognize as a lie. Nietzsche has the satyr, Silenus, reveal the truth of the world, that it would be better to not have been born at all, since, and since we have been born, it would be best to die soon. But art reverses that trajectory by serving as a transfiguring mirror. Engaged in an aesthetic justification of life, in seeking out the beauty of life, even the beauty of ugliness, as we shall see, we find that the best thing possible is experience, and it would be better to go on experiencing, to never die. This is a reversal of the Selenian wisdom or the Schopenhauerian wisdom. But remember that in Nietzsche's conception, we know we are dreaming. We recognize the lie that delights us as a lie. That makes it all the more valuable. We aren't fooled, exactly. We know we are building something meaningful in the context of possible absurdity. So, even within the Apollinean construction, the beautiful form, the Dionysian pull of disorder and the loss of bounded meaning tugs at us. The world needs illusion, according to this thought, not just human beings. The impulse for illusion, the Apollinean impulse, is natural. It's not a mere cultural response to nature. Now, that seems paradoxical until you realize that what Nietzsche sees here is a working out of antagonistic but not wholly opposed drives. The Apollinean requires the Dionysian and vice versa. Just as becoming requires being, something must be in order to become, and outside of infinity, something must become in order to be. Nietzsche thus reverses the Platonic complaint about art. For Plato, 
the objects we see, those are just reflections of a deeper, real world. This is the uh, meaning of the analogy of the cave. Real existence involved the pure forms. They occupied some realm beyond our experience. They were perfect, eternal, immutable. This was, we're talking about things like the form of the dog, or the form of the man, or the forms of the virtues, and so on. These forms had absolute being. They didn't change, so they didn't become. They were true, pure being. So any dog we see is a mere reflection of the form of the dog. Well, that means that a painting of a dog was a reflection of a reflection. Now, this is why Plato was suspicious of art. If our goal as humans is to get closer to the truth, then we should move from our experience of this dog, whatever dog's sitting at my feet now, to a consideration of the form of the dog, to move toward a reflection of a reflection, to to move from the dog sitting at my feet to a painting of the dog sitting at my feet, well, that's to move further away from truth. The lie of art, for Plato, is pernicious. For Nietzsche, things work otherwise. Nature accomplishes its goal by resting some manner of being out of becoming. For Plato, the world of becoming was a wan reflection of the world of being. Being was the true world. But for Nietzsche, being was an illusion made manifest within a world of becoming. Actually, even that's not entirely accurate. As we'll see in the following episode, being and becoming, they're not really placed within a hierarchy for Nietzsche as they are for Plato. Being and becoming are, in a sense, coeval and mutually dependent, just as the Apollinean and the Dionysian are. Anyway, Nature in Nietzsche requires the illusion of pure being, and it is manifest in this world, not some supernal world of the ideal forms. It requires illusion as an expression of nature itself. That is, since nature is a primordial unity, just like the will in Schopenhauer, it's somehow a, a amorphous one. Since it is a, primal, a primordial unity, it expresses itself through the individuation of actual objects in the world. So even though I'm looking around this room now and I see a guitar and I see some DVDs and I see a bed, those are all expressions, they're objectifications of that underlying sameness, of that that underlying will. So for Nietzsche, the dream world of art is a, quote, mere appearance of a mere appearance. And that for him is a higher appeasement of the primal unity's need for appearance. So in this sense, art is superior, not inferior, to concepts as it must be for Plato. The reasoning behind art's superior position in Nietzsche's thinking can be found in section 16 of of, uh, Birth of Tragedy. Recall that Nietzsche refers to the Apollinean and the Dionysian as drives, more astonishingly as the, quote, artistic states of nature, End quote, erupting from nature as such. So, the Apollinian is not the result of individual effort. Rather, it manifests as the principle of individuation. This might seem like a relatively fine and inconsequential point, but it's not. The Apollinian and the Dionysian do not derive from individual artists or individual cultures. 
So in working with these notions, in succumbing to or manifesting these drives in our creative lives, and remember that every aspect of your life is potentially creative in that you are your own artwork for Nietzsche. You're always shaping what you are becoming. So in manifesting these drives, we are essentially imitating the manner of production of the world or of the will or of the primal unity. But what exactly are we imitating? Ultimately, we're imitating that primordial one, the primal unity. It is in connection to this one that we, or rather it is the connection to the one that we seek in the Dionysian strain of art. Quote, Dionysian art, just like Apollinian art, wishes to convince us of the eternal joy of existence. Only we are to seek this joy, not in phenomena, which is what we do in the Apollinian art, right? We seek it by, by the, looking at the beauty of, of the object. But instead, in Dionysian art, we seek the truth of, of existence, the eternal joy of existence behind the phenomena, behind the objects, end quote. When we do this, we are really, for a brief moment, Nietzsche says, the primordial being itself, feeling its raging desire for existence and joy in existence. So, all the pain and suffering and destruction in the world are now revealed as necessary, as part of the exuberant fertility of the universal will. To depict this version of the Schopenhauerian will, Nietzsche has recourse to an idea of the ancient Greek philosopher, the pre-Socratic, Heraclitus. Heraclitus believed in eternal flux, and behind that flux was an ever-existing primordial unity that Heraclitus compares to a child. In section 24 of The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche writes, quote, Thus, the dark Heraclitus compares the world-building force to a playing child that places stones here and there and builds sandhills only to overthrow them again. So, in short, there it is. This is what we're doing when we are creating art. And this is why the, this is the proper justification of the world, that the proper justification of the world is aesthetic. Nietzsche, following Heraclitus, posits that the Schopenhauerian will, the primordial one, is not just a relentless surging up of insatiable hunger, as it is for Schopenhauer, it is a creative relentless surging up of insatiable hunger. Like a child playing in the sand of the beach, creating sandcastles, the primordial one creates worlds, plays with them for a while, and then destroys them to create anew. That means that destruction is part of the creative urge. When I knock that sandcastle down, that's just so I can make another one, continue to create. To leave it as it is, well, that's just boring. It also means that life is inherently beyond our attempts to control it and beyond our attempts to rationalize it. Part of the image of the child, notice it's not an adult doing this, it's a child. Part of that image for Heraclitus involves willful irrationality. The child doesn't destroy the sandcastle for any particular reason. It just tires of one creation, so it destroys it to create again. From the point of view of the sandcastle, that's not such a great deal. We are, in part, in the position of those sandcastles. We get destroyed, and then creation starts anew. This is part of what Nietzsche means when he talks about the deep understanding of reality as being an awareness of suffering and pain. But here is the difference. Here's the trick. We can identify 
with the primordial one, in that we too are creative spirits. So yeah, we as individuals, we die, but the primordial one goes on creating, and insofar as we are creative, we share some of that nature of the primordial one. Indeed, all of nature deriving from the primordial one is creative. So that is to say everything participates in the creative urge. So we, as human artists, and we're all human artists for Nietzsche, some are just better at it than others, some of us are just more aware of it than others, all of us, though, recognize on some level that identification with the one, and this offers the aesthetic justification of the world. Notice that statement. The world is justified through aesthetics, not metaphysics, which in this account reduces to a cosmic child literally toying with the universe, and not ethics, which Nietzsche sees as impermanent values that depend on who is attempting to get something out of a given ethical system, and not the search for truth, which Nietzsche also sees as far less stable than Plato and most other philosophers. Truth is, to some extent, what's convenient for us now. Truth is impermanent. So the world is justified through aesthetics because the only real truth is that the essence of the world, the primordial one, is a creative urge. By identifying with its creativity, we participate in the working out of truth and of the world. And this reinvigorates all those other systems, the metaphysics of the cosmic child of creativity, the ethics of Apollinean respect for difference combined with a Dionysian insistence that on a deeper level we're all connected to everything, and a logic or epistemology that sees a careful interweaving of being and becoming, of permanence and impermanence, of truth and illusion. posits that it is in Greek tragedy that the Apollinian and the Dionysian come together in a near-perfect balance, but they are the creative drives in all art and are always present together. Antagonistic, sure, but they don't exclude each other. They depend on each other. As we saw in episode 7, and as you can read in section 1 of Birth of Tragedy, the Apollinian and the Dionysian come together in the symbolic dream image. Remember that the dream and the image are the provenance of Apollo. The symbol, uh, in that it points beyond itself, is related to Dionysus. But think about a symbol for a moment. The point of the symbol is that we can see it. It is an image. 
The more striking the image, the more effective the symbol. Notice that. I didn't say the more accurate the symbol. We don't really judge symbols for accuracy. When Homer in the Odyssey refers to, quote, the wine-dark sea, or when Edgar Allan Poe has his raven cry, nevermore, we don't run out to the ocean and say, hey, that's blue, not wine-colored, nor do we consult an ornithologist to see if ravens really can speak. The wine-dark sea is not about accuracy and color, nor is Poe's raven about the actual possibility of avian speech. Rather, we are interested in the efficacy of the symbol. Homer's wine-dark sea strikes us because its allusion to wine makes operative the notion of drunken oblivion, and the sea in Homer is the site of chaos, of unpredictability, of the profundity of possibility, and the inability to control a power that nevertheless has a direct impact upon Odysseus's life and all of our lives. Poe's raven feels right because the large dark bird that eats carrion literally eats of the fruits of death. A strong bird that can quickly take wing and disappear seems a fitting herald for one's demise, for the fragility and ephemerality of life. Now, we can keep going. We can stretch that symbol out farther and farther. We can connect it to all sorts of other things within the poems and outside of them. That's the remarkable thing about the symbol. It shows you something all at once. It presents an immediate image, but it never reveals all that it has to say. We can keep thinking about it. We can keep working at it. It's inexhaustible. It provides a kind of insight, but not conceptual knowledge. It reveals truth, but it doesn't explain that truth. It allows confrontation not submission. But now a new drive emerges, and it's the drive Nietzsche sees as indicative of modernity. It's a drive that attempts to drive out, to some extent, the Apollonian and the Dionysian. It's an anti-artistic drive. Nietzsche associates it with Socrates, the great teacher of Plato, credited by most Westerners as the true foundation of philosophy. Of course, there was philosophy in Greece before Socrates. We call those thinkers pre-Socratics, which is telling, right? Socrates is such an important turning point that the thinkers before him are labeled as simply being before him. Socrates, of course, purports to know nothing. And in most of the Platonic dialogues that preserve some semblance of his teaching, what he generally does is pretty clever. He asks someone to explain uh, something they think they know really well, like what is virtue, or how do we know the things that we think are true, or what is the nature of truth. His interlocutors confidently tell him what they've learned on the topic, and he starts blowing holes in their definitions. It soon turns out that the things they thought they knew, they didn't really know all that well. They felt they knew it, but Socrates shows them that they did not really know. Now, that really know, that's the point. Knowing the world for Socrates, according to Nietzsche, means having conceptual control over it. It isn't about having the world show up to you in a certain manner and in the aesthetic mode of a symbol. This, therefore, is a move away from Apollo and Dionysus. Actually, it's worse than that. It's a deformation of those drives. Socrates, according to Nietzsche, perverts the Apollonian into logical schematism, basically like a mathematical drive toward abstract conceptual knowledge. And he reduces Dionysian ecstasy to naturalistic effects, reasonable emotions that can be controlled and observed. No more symbols. Now we have explanation. No more tragedy. Now we have arguments. Uh, 
No more determined joy in the face of deep pessimism. Now we have scientific optimism, meaning now we believe that we can change the world. We can improve it. The distance that Apollo and Dionysus require, it's gone. Socrates wants to get us closer to things, to control them, to submit them to instrumental reason. Instrumental reason is the form of reason, under Socrates, according to Nietzsche, thought to be the only real form of reason, that uses the things around us as tools. So I don't see a forest. I see shade or firewood or maybe the materials to build a house. I don't see a river. I see a power source or I see refreshment or a place to bathe. I can discipline myself to be a world conqueror. The world can be forced to accommodate me. Thoughts and concepts are cool, like the Apollinean image, but Socrates does not acknowledge them as lies. Concepts for Socrates are getting at the really real truth of the world. Our experience is the lie, not the concept. Affects are like Dionysian ecstasies, but they're really just individual emotions felt by individuals for Socrates. They no longer connect us to the primordial one or really even each other. For Socrates, in order to be beautiful, everything must be conscious. Knowledge and virtue, they're basically the same. So we're reduced by Socrates to our consciousness. We are the things that we think. And this is what Nietzsche detests. Because we're no longer instinct. We're no longer about the things that we creatively bring about. To follow Socrates is to find consciousness superior to instinct. In fact, it's to disavow the very notion of instinct. For Nietzsche, consciousness, using concepts, inhibits creativity. It slows us down. That's its function, and that's fine. Consciousness allows us to analyze, to come to know things conceptually, but that takes us out of the moment. Instinct. The artistic drives, they keep us in the moment. They are the wellsprings of creativity. In modernity, following Socrates, we lose a vital connection with our creative natures. We produce through labor, not through creation. Now, don't get me wrong. Nietzsche is not suggesting we can go back. He's not saying, well, all of our modern problems would be solved if we just stopped thinking scientifically and conceptually, if we just stopped listening to that Socrates guy. There's no going back. And certainly, conceptual thought brings about many advantages. The point becomes, how do we harness those advantages without losing sight of the creative spirit represented by the other drives, by Apollo, by Dionysus? This idea that modernity has driven us to a point of sterile dehumanization, that our emphasis on rationality, specifically instrumental rationality, has stunted our lives instead of enriching them, this notion was a major concern of the Frankfurt School of German philosophers, very influenced by Nietzsche, notably Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer in the 1940s, and then it began having an increasing impact on the U.S. in the late 50s through the 60s. During the 60s, the notion of the Dionysian in particular gets separated from the Apollinian. It becomes fetishized and connected to various countercultural concerns and ideals, particularly those deriving from the youth movement and the new left on the one hand, and then the hippies on the other. The hippies in particular latched onto a book by Herbert Marcuse a Frankfurt School philosopher living and teaching in the U.S., first at places like Columbia and Harvard, and then by the mid-60s at the University of California in San Diego. Marcuse published his work, Eros and Civilization, first in 55, and then he put out a second edition in 66 with a new preface that explicitly compares and contrasts what he felt he was doing with the countercultural movements of the 60s. 
Now, despite including some rather abstruse philosophical abstraction and some exactingly detailed analysis of concepts from the work of Freud, Eros' civilization was incredibly popular, and Marcuse was regarded as the father of the New Left. His thinking informed several tenets of the hippie phenomenon. Ultimately, Marcuse proposed that in the modern age, we were obsessed with productivity and with instrumental rationality. In other words, he endorsed Nietzsche's concerns with the Socratic. We are obsessed with money, with reputation, with having things in a zero-sum game in which I can only have more if you have less. But this was absurd in a modern age in which there was abundant enough food and resources and wealth to go around. Why, in this day and age, Marcuse asked, should anyone be hungry or homeless or destitute? The only reason he could see for that was that we had built up this image of ourselves that insisted we keep attaining at the cost of the happiness and comfort of others. Using Freudian terminology, he claimed that we let our reality principle, the drive that used nature and objects and other people so that we might get ahead in the world, we let that reality principle get out of control. And we were no longer concerned enough with the pleasure principle. To simplify matters a bit, he's saying we've lost the ability to have fun and to connect with each other. So we as a culture, we had learned to value the repression of desire more than the expression of desire and the sublimation of our sexuality, turning it into something else, basically work, more than the enjoyment of it. So Marcuse encouraged a positive view of something Freud viewed negatively, primary narcissism, in which Marcuse claims, or which Marcuse claims, engulfs the environment integrating self and world. In other words, it, it, it connects us to everything. It's that Dionysian impulse to connect. And this had a major impact on the countercultural thinking of the late 60s. This renewed, urgent need for the Dionysian erupted in literature, in film, in theater, in drug culture, and especially in music, particularly the music of the San Francisco bands, exemplified, for instance, by the Grateful Dead.
As Marcuse demonstrates, the 1960s found itself in something of a quandary. It had the material wealth and the political power to actually change the world for the better, and yet the U.S. was mired in a long and fruitless war in Vietnam. It had not too long ago gotten out of a fairly long and fruitless war in Korea. And so all of that promise seemed to be being squandered. And Marcuse and other critical thinkers such as Hannah Arendt, they became concerned with the rapacious nature of conformity in the post-World War II U.S. The concern was that with all these uh, opportunities, all these possibilities, why aren't we making life better? Arendt worried that modern society imposed, quote, innumerable and various rules, all of which tends to normalize its members, to make them behave, to exclude spontaneous action or outstanding achievement, end quote. So in other words, we weren't doing ourselves any favors by learning how to be productive in the manner that we've been productive, that perhaps the time for that has passed, uh, and the time for some kind of spontaneous action has returned. Now, this wasn't just critical thinkers writing to other academics. This, uh, this spread throughout the culture. A, a very good example of that is, of course, Timothy Leary, who was a, an academic. He was a clinical psychologist, and he was working in Harvard in the early 60s. And in the early 60s, he was conducting a series of uh, tests with LSD, uh, which was a fairly new invention at the time. And he felt that it was, as many people felt and still feel, it was expanding the borders of consciousness. And so he was experimenting with it. The problem that Harvard had with it, though, was that he was not, there was no control group. Everyone was taking the drugs, including him, and they were sharing their experiences. And so this was not a, a what was considered a scientifically rigorous uh study. Now, he becomes something of a cultural celebrity, though, once Harvard asks him to leave in, in 1963. Uh, he writes a series of books about the psychedelic experience, and he gives lectures throughout the country, and he becomes kind of a countercultural icon. Uh, at the Human Bean, which is this large celebratory festival uh, where there's, uh, it's, it's termed the Gathering of the Tribes in San Francisco. So this idea of all these various people who belong together, not simply because they're part of a society, but because they share certain ideals, uh, because they're part of this countercultural movement. And the, the Human Bean, of course, had some very important musical performances and um Allen Ginsberg, the beat poet, was there, and he was performing some kinds of rituals and so on. And Leary spoke, and very famously at the Human Being, uh, Leary says, "Turn on, or rather, he advises his his uh, audience, turn on, tune in, drop out." Right? Turn on, take drugs, take LSD, expand your consciousness, tune in. Uh, it can be somewhat ambiguous what he means here, but a lot of people took that to mean tune into the counterculture, tune into the music, tune into the art, tune into the, the togetherness, and drop out. Now, that drop out is the part that disturbs a lot of people, this idea of a disaffection. And that's what we're talking about to a certain extent when we're talking about the hippie movement. The hippie movement is different from the new left. The new left was very politically activist in nature, and the hippies tended to be a little more politically agnostic 
uh, in a sense, right? That that politics, at least politics, the way that they are conducted in this uh, country, in the United States, uh, has politics has not achieved what it has purported to attempt to achieve. There's no great consensus. There's just an exercise of power, and so the only response to that, uh, at least some people believed, was to opt out of the situation altogether, to not participate in that. That that anything you do within the confines of power uh, in in a political sense in the United States was just going to basically co-opt you into that power. You were going to become complicit whether you wished to or not. Of course, not everyone sees it this way. Of course, plenty of people see this as a reactionary stance in a sense, or at least a, a, uh, a sort of nihilistic stance. But the hippies did not feel that what they were involved in was nihilism, even if other people, for instance, as we'll see Ayn Rand, uh, accused them of a kind of nihilism. Now, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri in their book, Empire, feel that we often don't understand the hippies' concern with dropping out in the right manner. They write, The two essential operations were the refusal of the disciplinary regime and the experimentation with new forms of productivity. So it wasn't that the hippies were, as they're sometimes uh, criticized for being, they weren't lazy, right? And there's a really hilarious um, news special uh, that that looks at the hippies from that from that period uh, during the summer of love, and they uh, they're treating them almost like they're a uh, citizens of some kind of foreign uh, primitivist land, and they say you know the the hippies are very productive in their own way, and that's exactly what what uh, Hart and Negri are suggesting that they are productive in their own way, but it's not the kind of pro- production uh, that mainstream America recognized, mainstream United States recognized. This idea then that Marcuse is starting to introduce and that um, Leary is is suggesting gets very quickly uh, brought into play, if you will, with the Dionysian. And there was a fairly important late 50s translation of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy that had a great deal of impact on the thinkers we're talking about now. And let's just peruse a few of them to see how this notion of the Dionysian uh, gets employed in the the 1960s. Norman O. Brown, a social philosopher trained in the classics, uh, writes, resisting madness can be the maddest way of being mad. Right? So this idea that, that we resist madness by playing the conformity game, that that might be the most insane thing we can do. That perhaps a little madness, and it's unclear what he means by this because his writing is often more poetic than explanatory, uh, still this idea that, that what we're doing is giving into a kind of madness. This might be part of what Arendt uh, meant when, when she talks about uh, the idea of spontaneous creation and, and returning to some kind of spontaneity. Brown advocates what he calls body mysticism, where we cultivate a libido-rich body and employ mysticism as the path to get there. Here, the libido is no longer fractured in the Freudian sense into oral, genital, and anal zones, but it's polymorphously perverse, right? It approximates the inorganic, the unorganized, the body without organs that we talked about before, this idea that we are a 
unified body of some sort that's that is seeking out our desires and that those desires don't need to be necessarily sublimated or repressed that they can be a healthy expression of the self he writes the path of sublimation which mankind has religiously followed at least since the foundation of the first cities is no way out of the human neurosis but on the contrary leads to its aggravation end quote he assures his readers that we have to adopt the abolition of repression and the resurrection of the body where the human body becomes polymorphously perverse delighting in the full life that the of the body which now we we seem to fear so this is no longer he writes apollonian this is dionysian consciousness uh, which does not observe the limit but overflows consciousness which does not negate anymore i'll read that part again consciousness which does not negate anymore But this might be a rather poor reading of Nietzsche. After all, the consciousness inherently negates. It has to. That's what it does. That's its job. It carves out a space for understanding by hierarchizing. When I'm looking right now in my room and I see my bookshelf, I don't see just a mass of colors. I differentiate. I see the book that I want to read next. I see the book that I really should put in the other bookshelf of books that I've already read recently and don't need to bother with again. My consciousness inherently hierarchizes. There are other ways of knowing the world, Nietzsche suggests, not just the consciousness. So perhaps Brown is not reading Nietzsche all that well, especially when he advocates, as many people do in the 60s, that our path towards success here is purely through the Dionysian. Remember that Nietzsche feels that we always must carve out some kind of balance between the Apollinian and the Dionysian. So consciousness, we don't always have to to negate or to hierarchize in the same way, but we can't help but do that. We can never take in everything equally at once. That's not how consciousness works. Even expanded consciousness. Now, other um, writers that are concerned with the Dionysian, another important one is Ralph Gleason. Ralph Gleason's a very important critic uh, from the period. He starts off as a jazz critic and then starts writing about the San Francisco sound. And in a 1967 article for the American Scholar, he writes, Every period which abounded in folk songs has, by the same token, been deeply stirred by Dionysian currents. Uh, he, he says that this is what Nietzsche points out in The Birth of Tragedy. And Dionysian is the best word to describe the dances of the past 10 years. And he goes through the twist and so on. I'm not sure how Dionysian I think the twist is. But his point is twofold. On the one hand, what the San Francisco um, bands are doing involves folk songs, right? Now, of course, there's psychedelic folk songs, if you want to call them that. The Grateful Dead, as we'll see, draws upon folk songs quite strongly. That doesn't make what they're doing exactly folk songs, but he's showing that that there's something coming up from below, and that's what he sees as the Dionysian here. And then the the connection with dance is another aspect that Gleason is seen as Dionysian. So he's insisting that a new set of assumptions are being worked out in this music. He says it's too soon to see them clearly, but they seem to be, quote, the sacred importance of love and truth and beauty and interpersonal relationships, along with, quote, relinquishing a belief in the sacredness of life. So again, this this idea that maybe madness isn't madness after all. Maybe logic is the kind of insanity. Maybe we need to remove ourselves from the profit motive and so on. And he references the diggers, uh, this group uh, that tried to provide free food at some of these concerts and so on, that we're looking for other ways of creating political and social change. But along with this, in the 60s, is a fear of the, the notion that the Dionysian might lead to a kind of fascism. 
John Simon, a, a theater critic, writing a review of uh, a play called Dionysus in in '69, which involved a lot of nudity and blood on stage and um, uh, simulated sexual acts. Uh, he writes, "It is the god Dionysus who is a fascist, forcing sexuality and violence on us all, and together with the other performers, inflicting malodorous intentions on the audience." One of the things that this play involved was audience participation. Force audience participation. Uh, some audience members walked out because they didn't want to be dragged into uh, this spectacle, and that's one of the things John Simon is um, objecting to. So this idea that liberation and is, a, is, in a sense, kind of forced upon other people and therefore becomes a kind of fascism. Anne Rand, the novelist and objectivist philosopher, um, wrote an article called Apollo and Dionysus in November of 69, where she's comparing the Woodstock Festival uh, with the uh, launching of, uh, of, of the Apollo space um, mission. Um, and she very much simplifies Nietzsche's ideas, as, as all of these, almost all of these writers are. Um, so for her, Apollo is reason and Dionysus is emotion. There's no nuance here. It's a simple distinction. So for her, the devotees of the wine god at Woodstock, she calls them scummy young savages. They were the Dionysian mob. They aren't thinking for themselves. And that is part of the, the Dionysian mode, right? That you're involved in, a, in an immersion in the group. But uh, for her, this is simply giving up your right to think for yourself. So she describes the hippies as, quote, a desperate herd looking for a master. They is the mentality ready for a furor. So there's this concern with the idea of, of fascism. You can almost understand it. Think of, of some of the um, psychedelic and, and hippie-inspired lyrics of, say, the Beatles with the song The Word, right? Uh, say the word and be like me. Say the word and you'll be free. So your path toward freedom is to be like me. I don't know that the uh, that the Beatles, certainly I don't think they were implying any kind of fascism, but one can certainly read uh, the words in that way. And so you have some calls for a kind of balance. Sam Keane, a philosopher who wrote a book called Apology for Wonder in 1969, declares that we need a balance between the Apollinian and Dionysian. So that's a, a proper reading, I would say, of Nietzsche. The either-or we face, he says, quote, leads to the destruction of the synthesis, which is the essence of the creative personality. Uh, either God worshipped alone leads to madness. And so once again, we have this idea of the balance between the Apollinean and the Dionysian. Now, in an upcoming episode, we will apply some of this thinking about Apollo and Dionysus more directly to the Grateful Dead, and specifically to the practice of improvisation. But for now, I'd like to conclude this episode with a few general thoughts about the dead in light of what we've been discussing. The dead, of course, got their start in what is often described as a Dionysian mode of performance, the acid tests. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and His Merry Pranksters, traveled the country in a paisley decorated, garishly colorful bus called Further and hosted acid tests. Basically, for a small fee, you could enter this party, have a hit of LSD, and then do whatever. Interact, engage, sit by yourself, whatever. It was meant to be an experience-rich environment that, coupled with the drug, would assist in expanding your consciousness. The dead played at several of these, and they often cite these events in interviews as pivotal, pivotal to their mindset in performance. They could play or not play, as they saw fit, as the mood took them. Jerry Garcia suggests that sometimes they would start a set, find they weren't feeling it, stop a few minutes in. Other times they'd play for hours. It didn't matter because it was not really their performance. They weren't the center of attention. 
That gave them a kind of freedom. The freedom to do something new also implies the freedom not to bother. The acid tests gave them temporary permission for both. I say temporary because the band didn't remain in that mode of performance. They soon toured and made albums, but the acid tests infused a certain spirit to those other performances that more closely approximated normative rock performance without entirely becoming normative. The very concern that we've seen in the 60s. And that, I think, is a central point. Creation can't remain eternally formless. You can hear this in dead performances. It isn't all freeform chaos, not even close. The songs take shape. Some songs are played in a surprisingly similar manner across the decades, especially certain of the covers. Others change fairly radically over the course of their career. But even the most flexible of the tunes maintain some pretense toward identity, toward being the songs that they are. They maintain an Apollonian aspect. This is demonstrated by Garcia's reflections in an interview on the distinction between their live performances and their experiences in the recording studio. The studio production, he says, is like a ship in a bottle. Live performance is like being in a boat tossed on the sea. But he doesn't say that, or at least it doesn't seem to me that he says it, in order to downplay the importance of one over the other. They're simply different impulses. One's based on the perfection of construction, the other's based on being in the moment and within the flow. They're impulses that have to be brought together in some manner. Their second album, Anthem of the Sun, is a case in point. It literally mixes studio recordings with live recordings. The recording studio, and I don't mean separate tracks, I mean they mix them together. The recording studio becomes the site for further experimentation, further improvisation. Garcia and Bob Weir and Phil Lesh, they all describe those sessions as an opportunity for them to play with the studio equipment. Trial and error. Let's just see what this button does. That kind of thing. Not knowing discovering, not reading the manual to see how things have been done, but pressing the button to see what might be done. Anthem involves live performance as an ingredient, among others. It attempts to employ that moment of spontaneity within a work. And so, its work character, its facade as a completed entity that could stand the test of time, that is to say its Apollinean nature, is qualified by this infusion of the reckless abandon of discovery, by improvisation as its mode of coming into being as a work, by the Dionysian. The album becomes an answer that plays out the search, so to speak. But the Dionysian and the Apollinian temper each other. It's wrong, I think, to hear this album as formless, beautiful chaos. In fact, the problem lies right there within that contradiction. Beauty, by definition, involves form of some sort, even if only in a limited manner. To have purchase upon it, we have to have some kind of sense of what's going on, of what it is. We can feel the sublime power of the unforeseen, the Dionysian, but we also feel the fittingness of it all, the formed beauty of it, the Apollinian. But more than just that, we have some sense of what it all is and what it does. Consciousness may lag behind, but it has some purchase. Perhaps this is one way of understanding Nietzsche's desire for a musical Socrates. Consciousness, expanded perhaps and not derisive toward feeling, has its place. 
We see the same impulses suffusing the lives and careers of the members of the Grateful Dead. Their experiences with communal living at 710 Ashbury in, in San Francisco, their collectivist business model where at least at times everyone associated with the group got a vote on large decisions, the various writers in their touring contracts that insisted that their fans, uh, the deadheads, many of whom followed them from show to show, were accommodated in some fashion given advice about campsites and so on. The fact that the the band allowed fans to record live shows, turning the ephemeral into the documented, freezing the Dionysian flow into an Apollinean performance, or permanence rather. The very phenomenon of the deadheads, finding an alternative path to the sustenance of life so that they continue to have that experience, not unproductive but finding new modes of productivity. Even this, of course, is not simply a turning away, a dropping out. It is a kind of return to an older ideal of the weird old America, when touring wasn't a mode of doing business, but rather a mode of discovering one's place in the world and finding that it wasn't just one place. The narratives of discovery that suffuse American culture from the grapes of wrath to easy rider. Perhaps we can even see this careful balance of the Apollinian and the Dionysian in the very name of the band, Grateful Dead, a name more or less uh, randomly happened upon by Garcia in a dictionary, which is defined as, quote, the soul of a dead person or his angel showing gratitude to someone who, as an act of charity, arranged their funeral. There was an event, an isolated service, a funeral, serving as a monument to the recently departed. Memorialization of this sort has an Apollinian foundation. It's an attempt to give form to a life. Only when it is ended can a process fully reveal itself as formed. That's the theory of perfection in Aristotle, for example, and we'll see that that theory had an important impact on Nietzsche. But gratitude is not temporal, temporally limited. Certainly not for the dead. It goes on. It endures and continues. It's a mode of connection, an act of giving across a seemingly impossible divide between living and death. And in that sense, it's Dionysian. Gratitude and memorialization are not acts and events based in knowing. They involve other impulses, impulses grounded in emotion and bodily affect. They are the expressions of our instincts to leave a mark in this world, however ephemeral it may be, and to connect to something deeper, to each other, to the world, and to remain forever grateful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. 
I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwickjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.